Hey everybody, it's Jason. We're taking a short break here on our Monday industry-focused financial show this week. So we wanted to replay an interview that Matt and I recently first ran a little over a month ago with the co-founder of Square, Jim McKelvey. This was a really fun interview, and we hope it serves as a nice little respite in these crazy times. So stay healthy, enjoy the interview, and we'll be back at you next Monday, April 13th, with a brand new episode, just in time to kick off what may just be the most fascinating earnings season ever. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, March 2nd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's financial show, we've got a fun interview for you. Jim McKelvey is the author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time, which is available now for pre-order wherever books are sold. Jim's also the co-founder of a little company some of you may have heard of, Square. Yes, that's right, the payments company. Recently, Matt Frankel and I had the good fortune to speak with Jim about what led him to write The Innovation Stack, his experiences in Square's very early days, business lessons from Dr. Seuss, and a whole lot more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, so we are here with Jim McKelvey, who is the co-founder of Square. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Um, you are here, first of all, you just wrote a book called The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business One Crazy Idea at a Time. So the first question on my mind is, what is the innovation stack? Oh, it's this thing I sort of stumbled over uh, trying to answer a question that had bothered me for two years. And the, the question that bothered me is, why was Square still alive? Um, we, we had something happen to us in our fourth year that almost always kills or eliminates small companies, which is, uh, Amazon. Yeah. Amazon came in, uh, copied our product, undercut our price and offered a bunch of stuff that we didn't have. And people thought that square was going to go the way of diapers.com or 50 other companies that Amazon's tried this too. And somehow we survived. And I was really happy that we didn't perish, but I was also really confused because I could never find another example of a company having survived a direct attack from Amazon while they were a startup, you know, like Netflix is okay. Um, but startups don't survive a direct assault from Amazon. And so I went on this race, basically a research quest looking for any other company that this had happened to. And though I couldn't find any other companies that had survived an attack by Amazon. Um, looking back in history, I saw a bunch of parallels um, from you know centuries ago up until you know recently, and they all shared this thing that I called an innovation stack. So there was this process that I saw, and when I saw that, I was like, "Oh crap! I guess I got to write about this." <laughs> nobody else had nobody else had described it, and and writing is really difficult, but I just had to do it. So. That's why there's a book. What were some of the the big challenges in your early days with Square? I mean, it's a the more you dig into the payments industry, the more confusing it becomes, right? That value chain is not exactly the easiest thing to connect all the dots in. But what were some of the bigger challenges beyond Amazon that you all faced uh, in in Square's early days? So, um, one of the things you just mentioned, which is that the payment system, especially in the credit card world, is extremely confusing. 
And that's not an accident. It turns out that the confusion allows the vendors in that system to hide a lot of complexity and tricks. So for instance, when I was a small merchant and processing credit cards, um, some guy in a necktie would sh show up in my studio every about you know every two or three years. And he'd say, what are you paying for credit cards? And I'd say, well, I don't know. And he'd say, well, give me your statements and I'll tell you. And so he'd come back a couple of days later and he'd say, guess what? I can save you money. You just need to sign a three-year contract with us. <laughs> you know, so I would. And that, this, you know, this went on about three cycles until I realized that there was always a new guy in a necktie and the deal was never what he said it was going to be. It would always be some sort of bait and switch. And the reason they could do that was that my contract was 42 pages of six-point type. Wow. There were so many tricks and gotchas that no merchant really had any idea. So that confusion, what you just pointed out, that was not an accident. Um, but then as we started to get into it, uh, what Square was doing was trying to enable credit card payment uh, for very, very small merchants, in some cases, individuals. And in order to do that, we had to build an entirely new system because none of the banks, none of the processors were capable of handling transactions with our type of clients. So Square had to stand up this completely different system and then figure out some way to connect it to the existing rails so that we could actually uh, get people paid. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I did spend a couple of years working at a uh, at a bank, and I had some exposure to the to the merchant solutions side of the of the business. So, speaking to your point on contractual obligations that were pretty much impossible to to fully understand because of the documents, um, I mean, I, I saw that you know firsthand at the bank, and, and that was kind of what opened my eyes to how confusing the space was. Um, but but when I mean when you look at that confusion, it does feel like uh, we we talk about one of the bigger risks in this space being regulation. How do you feel about the regulatory environment here in the payment space? You feel like this is something that's still you know going to face some serious change as far as regulations go, or is it is it more or less kind of uh, resilient to that? Well, I mean, look, regulation is good. And, and by the way, I am technically a bank regulator now. I mean, uh -huh. I, uh, I'm the deputy chair of the Fed uh, in St. Louis. So I, I, did I literally that, you know? I oversee and am not allowed to own stocks in uh, banking entities that, uh, that the Fed regulates. So I see it from that perspective. I also see it from this perspective of, you know, as a small business person who, you know, has to deal with all this stuff. And then as, as somebody who's built systems for payments and 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 am regulated, so I'm, I'm on both sides of that equation. And what I'd say is this: Look, you absolutely need regulation when it comes to moving money. You absolutely need rules, and better that they be consistent rules, and better that they be thoughtful rules, um, because we want a level playing field. We want all the players to be able to compete. In the case of the credit card world, what we discovered was that many of these regulations were not federal or you know sort of government regulations they were industry practices they were things that banks were doing um sometimes just out of spite um and i i'm actually i have some great stories from the head of payments from walmart about how the banks were abusing walmart now at the time walmart was the biggest retailer in the world <laughs> and the banks are still slapping Walmart around. So if you can imagine how powerful an industry has to be in order to abuse Walmart, uh, just imagine what they can do to startups. So um, so a lot of this regulation uh, falls into this category of just sort of unnecessary rulemaking 
which is it's almost like a it, it's almost like a built-in bias in the system. And the biases when we started were strongly against small merchants. And so Square made a you know 11-year effort and counting to create systems on behalf of small businesses uh, so that they can compete on level playing fields. I feel like the the big payments companies could have done this, you know, 10, 15 years ago if they really wanted to. But it feels like they were a little complacent in terms of technology. Do you think that's kind of been a big edge for Square and others who have really innovated in the payments industry, that the, the big banks have just really been complacent over the years when it comes to embracing small businesses? Um, possibly. Although I, I, I don't think it was complacency necessarily. I think it was um, just the inertia that they had. They were making so much money doing what they were doing that there was no reason to expand the market. And by the way, when we started, they didn't think the market existed. And by the way, neither, neither did we. So I'm not going to tell you that Jack and I were you know, prescient and were able to foresee what would happen. And as a matter of fact, we made a bet uh, the second day in, in business that we would uh, you know, celebrate in a year uh, our success or failure because we literally did not know. <laughs> You, but, didn't, you didn't see it getting to, um, you know, a no. hundred billion dollars of payment volume or anything no, like that. No, we didn't. We didn't. Look, I mean, you know, it's. I, I wish we had. You know, I wish we were that. You know, that farsighted. No, we were very. Um, uh, we were in a situation that many entrepreneurs are in, and and by by that I mean, we were building something that had never been built, and if you're building something that has never been built you don't know if there's anyone who wants to buy it. Okay. So, um, you know, now everybody's raving about electric cars and how cool electric cars are. But it it was funny when I was starting square, like back in 2008, um, I was actually working on an electric car company at the time. There were basically no electric cars and Tesla hadn't really come out yet. And I was trying to build um, an open source electric vehicle because I thought they had a lot of advantages. But when I went around to the various, you know, folks I know in the auto industry, they all said, Oh, well, people don't want electric. People don't want electric. They'll never want that. They'll never drive it. And of course you can't argue with them because, well, there are no electric cars, so there's no market. Um, what we saw at square was the same thing. The big banks, I think very rationally, uh, were concentrating on their, big businesses that were making a lot of money for them and they were ignoring all the small guys. And whenever one of them would try to serve a small guy, they'd get killed because they didn't have the tools to do that. And what Square ended up doing, and actually it sort of gets back to the thing that allowed us to survive an attack by Amazon, was that we built an entirely different ecosystem to serve the small merchants. And it was not just one or two things, but, uh, 14 different things that we had to do in order to move that first dollar for a little guy. Sure. Well, actually, let's let's rewind the clock then. Um, a lot of our listeners, I'm sure, don't know the, the story of the early days of Square. Will you um, kind of just briefly share how, how the idea came into your head? So Jack Dorsey and I have known each other for almost 30 years now. We have been uh, buddies and sometimes co-workers. He used to work for me at another company that I actually still own. Um, and... Uh, Right after Jack was kicked out of Twitter for the first time, uh, I reconnected with him over Christmas. Uh, He came back to St. Louis, where we're both from, 
and we were hanging out and he told me what they'd done at Twitter. And I, I, I got really angry because this is my buddy and he'd started Twitter and they kind of kicked him out, which was really sort of despicable. And I said, uh, I said, you know, I got some time. We should go back to California and get even with those guys. <laughs> and, and, and Jack, to his credit, was like, well, why don't we do something more positive? <laughs> so, so I was like, okay, well, what do you want to do? He's like, uh, I don't know. We'll start a company. I was like, cool. You have an idea? He's like, no. Do you have an idea? I was like, no. So, so we went and we went, started brainstorming about business ideas. And we came up with this idea um, that was sort of a journaling app. It, it was actually Jack's idea. Um, and I don't think either one of us were that psyched about it, but we already hired our first employee. So we had to do something. Um, so I went back to my uh, studio. So I'm a glass blower in St. Louis. I have a hobby of making stuff that nobody needs out of glass. Right? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an artist. Right. Um, and, and it's a hobby, but it used to be a profession and I take it pretty seriously. And I was, I was back uh, trying to sell a piece of glass to a lady who uh, had an American express card but she didn't have a Visa or MasterCard. And we don't take Amex at my studio. Um, so I said, well, do you have an Amex? I said, I said, I can't take an Amex card. Do you have a Visa? And she's like, oh no, my husband has the Visa card. <laughs> and she was buying this ridiculous piece of glass. And I knew her husband, if he found out how much money she was about to spend on this thing, would shut it down. Um, and so I lost this sale and I was upset because um, it was a phone sale. It was this lady calling me over the phone and I was looking at my phone and yeah, it was an iPhone at the time. I think it was an iPhone two. And I was so angry because my expectation of my phone is that it does anything. You know, it turns into an email server or a camera or a video recorder, or like it, it, it turns into a book or a TV. Like my phone magically becomes whatever I want it to, but it couldn't magically become a credit card reader. And I said, this thing needs to magically become a credit card reader just for me. I didn't know if anybody else had that need. But for myself, I wanted it. So I called up Jack on the same phone and I said, Hey man, I think I got a problem for us. I think I have something that's worth fixing. And by the way, I'm really angry about this. So let's use that anger as our motivation. Um, so Jack, you know, thought about it a couple of days and then he agreed that that would be a really cool direction for the company. Um, largely because there had been no innovation in payments for 10 years. I, the, the previous sort of innovative uh, burst in payments was PayPal, but that was 10 years prior to Square. So we thought it was a good time to get into an industry that nobody else had touched. Uh, FinTech wasn't a thing at the time. Um, and, you know, we were just coming out of a recession. So uh, talent was plentiful. Office space was free. I mean, it was a good time to start a business. Like the depth of a recession, that, that's a good time to hit the hit the Yes. Good time to buy stocks too. We found definitely, and um, so since you're the artist out of out of you and Jack, I'm assuming you're the one who came up with the design for the original Square Reader because it, it is like a piece of art almost. Well, you know, Jack's got his artistic side too, um, so I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm the only one. But I'm the guy who makes stuff. I'm the builder. I'm the physical builder. So yes, I I designed and built the early Square Readers and designed the electronics and uh, built the case and uh, came up with the proportions and. Um, and, and then physically made them. I mean, the other thing is these were not just subcontracted to some other company. Like I went to my studio and I, you know, got a Bridgeport mill and a bunch of, uh, uh Lucite and I started milling out the, uh, the components, you know, in a little sweatshop operation. Yeah. That so was me. I'm, 
And I, I ask because one, I think you won um you won a, a modern art award, I think, for the Square Reader. Well, it, it wasn't. I mean, uh, so the Museum of Modern Art featured the Square Reader in a show, and uh, the Smithsonian also did. So, ironically, after a guy, you know, as as a guy who's been making you know glass art for twenty five years, uh, I get into uh, MoMA on a little piece of plastic. So, <laughs> you know, but, and, know. And, there the, you go. The other reason I ask is because I feel like that was the the design itself was a big differentiator. Um, all of a sudden, not only could you plug this little thing into your into your phone and accept credit card payments, but it was you know an aesthetically pleasing design too that I think appealed to a lot of because um your a lot of your target market is artists and and you know and in my local craft market for example, everybody has a square reader. So I, I think the design could have been a, a big part of the innovation itself. Would you agree with that? I, I think the design was, and I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I purposely designed a reader that didn't work particularly well. Um, and I'll tell you what happened. So um, before Square, I was hanging out in Japan a lot. I was in Tokyo. I had an apartment in Tokyo. And uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, lived in Tokyo. And she took me to this store called Loft. And if anyone of your listeners has been to Loft, they'll know what I'm talking about. This is a store that sells nothing but phone charms. Okay. <laughs> We're talking about like an entire retail store with nothing but little baubles you put on your phones. And the Japanese were obsessed with these things. You would watch, you know, some guy walking down the street with like a dreadlock of phone charms, <laughs> you know, Hello Kitty, you know, like banging on his head uh, as he, you know, sort of barked into his phone. This, this was the Japanese culture. Uh, and, and I looked at these little charms and I thought, wow, it would be cool for the square reader to be, something that could be sold at loft. And it had this certain quality of, it had to be small and cute and precious and like a piece of jewelry. So when I built the square reader, I tried to make it really small and cute. But the problem with that was that the card, the credit card would wobble as you tried to swipe it through because the the track wasn't long enough uh, for it to be a stable uh, movement. So the way to fix this was to make the track about two and a half inches long. And then the card wouldn't wouldn't wobble and the read would be correct. But the problem with that was um, it wasn't interesting. (laughs) So I built two readers. I built a a small reader, which is the one you know as the square reader. And then I built a large reader, which worked better. It worked way better. But when I test them, I noticed that people who use the big reader were sort of ho-hum about it. But people who use the small reader were just blown away. They couldn't believe something so small would read a credit card. And what happened, I think this really helped the company because people would have to practice their credit card swipes. And once they learned how to do it, they would show off, right? So now I've got people practicing my product, okay, paying attention to my product, and then showing their friends how good they are. And teasing their friends who can't do it. Like it, it became this thing to learn how to do. It was, it was so much attention on this little company. And of course, once you have that attention, it's not just, you know, on the card reading. They would think about Square. They would think about uh, how our system was free, um, how the pricing was fair, uh, how we'd get them the money three days before anybody else would. Um, how we allowed them to leave at any time without a contract. I mean, they would think about all the stuff that we were trying to tell them. And that moment when they were playing with the, that little toy that we gave them, 
was a precious moment for getting attention on what was a new idea. I want to I want to pivot here for a second, kind of going back to the challenge from Amazon in the early days and just generally, I mean, how difficult it is to start a business uh, and, and to really gain traction and get to the, to the point where, where Square is today. You have an interesting uh, business philosophy, I guess, or you, you've learned a little bit along the way from Dr. Seuss and the Sneeches in particular. <laughs> I read yeah. that, Jim, okay, and I, I thought it was really cool. I enjoyed it. For all of our listeners out there who don't know what I'm talking about, Tell tell our listeners what what is the business lesson you got from Dr. Seuss that's still serving you today? Oh, so the <laughs> the, the business lesson from Dr. Seuss um, was from the Sneeches. Uh, so okay, to the star belly Sneeches uh, had stars upon their bellies, and the uh, plain bellied Sneeches didn't. And the star bellies were cool, and the planes were not. Okay, so then. This, this business person, Sylvester McMonkey McBean, shows up on the beach with his star on machine and he stamps stars on the starless sneeches for three bucks. And then, so now they can't, so now they can't differentiate the sneeches. So the sneeches with stars go onto Sylvester's star off machine and they have their stars removed. And then, you know, chaos ensues. It's a great book. Um, but the, the critical thing that happened to me when I was a little kid, I was so uncool. I was this skinny, geeky little kid. Uh, you know, I, my parents, my dad was a teacher, you know, like we weren't, uh, we weren't cool. Okay. And, um, I was really desperate to fit in. And I remember that feeling. And I remember reading the sneeches and thinking how stupid it was for these, Sneeches to be stamping stars on their bellies and then having them removed and 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 it somehow dawned on me at, at some point to just like not try to fit in that hard like I, I like from a very early age I gave up being cool and and like if if this was a video like if we were doing this this on video you would look at me you go oh yeah you're you're continuing the trend. <laughs> Today, why do you I'm think just, we're doing? I mean, that's you could say the same about us. That's why we focus on podcasts and less on video. <laughs> yeah, have a fa- have a face for radio. Yeah, I've, I've been exactly. Um, look, here's the thing about entrepreneurship, okay, and why I think the Sneeches were. I think I think the Sneeches is a business book, but for the following reason: what I do is not business; it is entrepreneurship, and what I mean by that is. I don't do things that have been done before. I do things that have not been done before. So if you look at all the stuff that I've done, basically, I mean, like serving on the Fed, okay, people have done that before. But I mean, the companies that I've started, the nonprofits I've started all have this thing in common, which is there was nothing to copy when we started. I mean, we would love to copy something that worked, but we didn't have anything. So I end up having to build things that haven't been built. And because of that, uh, I take a lot of grief. So in the early days of Square, like one of the executives uh, from a $4 billion payment company uh, took me out to dinner uh, and told me for two hours what an idiot I was for trying to serve small merchants. He was like, you're stupid. You don't understand payments. You're going to get, you're going to lose all your money. He, He just berated me. 
And you know what? I had to sit there and take it because I couldn't argue. If you do something new, if you do something that has not been done before, you will feel so alone because you don't have any, any company. And um, that's a feeling that is never comfortable, but you can kind of get used to it. And I, over the years, have kind of gotten used to it. I'm, I'm so accustomed to people coming to me and saying, well, that ain't going to work. And then I say, well, I think it will. They say, well, prove it. And I can't because, you know, the only way to prove it is to point to another example of the same thing working somewhere else. Well, that doesn't exist. So being a snarless, starless snitch at an early age was, uh, <laughs> it was a real help to me. Yeah. So speaking of something that is kind of polarizing, it doesn't, doesn't fit in. And a lot of people tell, tell me that I'm an idiot because I like <laughs> is uh, cryptocurrencies. Speaking of something that, um, I know for a fact Jack Dorsey is a big cryptocurrency advocate. Um, I, I, re- I did his, I went through his Bitcoin tutorial on on Square's website. Um, what are you, what are your thoughts about how that could be kind of an innovative concept in finance going forward? I know you can't talk about too much of what Square's doing, but so, so the good things about um, crypto is you don't need permission. Like nobody can regulate, nobody can tell you what to do. Um, that allows for tremendous speed, uh, both in terms of, you know, what you're allowed to build and what you're allowed to, you know, transact. The, the problem with that, however, um, and, you know, my views differ from, you know, my co-founders a little bit. And, and that is I'm worried about anonymous payments um, because they tend to be uh, vectors for crime. So what I have thought with crypto is that there are going to be some very angry governments that uh, do not like their citizens avoiding taxes. They do not like enabling, uh, you know, criminal activity and that those governments are likely to regulate in ways that will be um, sort of unknown, but probably uh, pretty heavy handed. So I think we're just seeing the beginning of this. Um, now that said, I love what blockchain can do. I love the speed. I, I love I love the utility of it. Uh, I love the openness of it. So there's a lot of good stuff, but we're early days. And the thing that has not happened yet is uh, government stepping in. You've seen it a little bit in China. Okay, the government of China is starting to step in, um, but there is I think more to come there. And I'm I'm cautious when it comes to. Um, you know, the cryptos, because I think there's going to be a new, there, there, ha, there has to be some sort of next step with governments coming in. And I don't know what that's going to be, but my guess is that if it's typical government regulation, um, it's going to be pretty heavy handed. So one thing we've enjoyed following here, one thing our listeners enjoy following, in Square is a recommendation in our services. Another company that's a recommendation, Shopify, uh, two very popular uh, companies in, in our Foolish Universe and, and investment ideas that have done very well for listeners. But to see the competitive jockeying that is going on between Square and Shopify, it's becoming more interesting because you see two companies that they started off in different areas, but it seems like they're both working their way to becoming 
more the same thing. You know, Square starting off on the payments hardware and software sides, Shopify starting out really helping people build websites, you know, focusing on that small business customer again. But now you're seeing uh, Shopify making more efforts into hardware point of sales and trying to become a little bit more what Square is like. And Square, uh, you know, trying to become a little bit more what Shopify is like. I think that Weebly acquisition was was uh, something something uh, along those lines as well. But I wonder if you could speak at all to uh, the the competitive jockeying that goes on between companies like Shopify and Square as they become more alike. I still feel like you got to own both of these businesses. I mean, it seems like a really big market opportunity for both companies to exist and succeed, don't you think? Oh yeah, I mean, and you don't typically have you know singular points in these larger markets. And look, um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for the folks at Shopify, and I think both companies are responding to market need. So you see two companies who are both trying to serve their customers really well, and the customers are have similar needs. Um, some of their customers are our customers and vice versa. And it's natural that those needs are going to be reflected in product lines that are going to overlap to some extent. So yeah, that's natural and probably healthy. There's definitely a big opportunity going in payments and Square is historically focused on you know the, the physical merchant side of it. How much do you worry about e-commerce disruption? And is that kind of why Square is pivoting towards, you know, with the Weebly acquisition and trying to become more of a Kind of oh, all I mean, we're merchant. not pivoting. So let's let's so the pivot is sort of an abandonment of the previous sure, direction. Sure. Okay. What we're doing is we're adding features that our customers want. So yes, online sure. sales. Yes, absolutely. Would we have we added that? Yes. Um, uh, are we continuing to work on it? Sure. Uh, are there a bunch of other things that we're adding on top of that? Absolutely. So you know, it's an ecosystem that is that is growing all the time, and it's getting it's getting pretty good. You know, like the goal here is I want a business to be able to focus on what they do. Okay. So if your business is cutting down trees, okay, then cut down trees. Okay. Don't run an accounting firm, you know, don't run a payroll operation. Uh, don't become your own tax, uh, uh, company. Um, you know, if you, if you think about what happens, especially with small business is that the, the small business person typically spends only a fraction of their time doing their actual business. They spend the rest of their time, you know, wrangling payroll or handling a loyalty program or, you know, uh, balancing their bank books or trying to figure out to how to get credit or, you know, like there are all these things that that distract you from your actual business. And so what Square's doing is we're trying to make that stuff just disappear. So you just use Square. We have a dozen wonderful products that will you know, make your payroll hassles go away. Make your loyalty program manage itself. Uh, you you need a line of credit? We got that too. You know, so just make all those other things sort of fade into the background. So now you focus on what you're good at. What's your business doing? That's where you should be spending your time. What's a good example of a business out there today that exemplifies the innovation stack? I mean, any any companies out there that really have impressed you in the, in, in the way that they've been able to, to grow and evolve. And you can't say Amazon. <laughs> yeah, no Amazon. <laughs> so uh, I can't say Amazon, although I would say they've, they've, they've got a fantastic innovation stack at Amazon. They, they really have been a, a maverick in, in online commerce for, for decades. But, um, you know, the, the classic one that I you know, use a great example of in the book is Ikea. Okay. Oh, yeah. And uh, what Ikea is, there's a couple of things that are interesting about Ikea. First of all, furniture has to be 
the industry that has the least innovation in the world. Okay. Cause we have had furniture for millennia, you know, since mankind was able to, you know, sort of shape trees into stumps. Like we have had tree stumps to sit on. Like the, you, if you would think of an industry that doesn't have innovation potential because it's just been done completely, uh, it was furniture. And if you look at what Ikea did, they completely revolutionized furniture to the point where it is now possible for uh, normal people to afford new furniture. And this was not always the case. You know, when I grew up and went to college, everybody in college had stolen milk crates and two by fours as shelves. You know, and these days they all have these beautiful IKEA things. And IKEA has really revolutionized furniture. And the question is, well, what in the world did they do? And the answer was, um, they built an innovation stack. And, and by an innovation stack, I mean they were prevented from copying. So the key to an innovation stack is you have to do things that have not been done before. And since copying what has been done before is almost always, you know, sort of the first move. Um, there has to be something preventing you from that. And what I found in Ikea's case, and this is why it's such a perfect parallel to what happened at Square, was that uh, Kamprad, the founder, uh, was actually kicked out of Sweden. Uh, they basically boycotted him. Uh, the, 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 it was a boycott. Uh, they kept him out of the factories. Uh, they kept him physically out of the trade shows. They wouldn't let him sell his work. I mean, they wouldn't let him go to the fairs where all the other uh, <clears throat> furniture stores were selling. I mean, he was basically a starless snitch. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and, and then they kicked him out and they basically said, you know, you can't manufacture your stuff in Sweden. So he had to go to Poland and well, he had these old factories in Poland, but the factories needed retooling. Every time they kicked Comprad out, he invented something else and he invented and invented, invented. He kept innovating, eventually coming up with the thing that you now know of as Ikea. But a lot of the things that Ikea does were first in the world. Okay. So the, the catalog showroom, where you have a catalog in your hand, but all the merchandise is there in front of you so you can touch it. Well, that's revolutionary. Okay, Ikea invented that. Um, Knockdown furniture. They didn't invent that, but they perfected it. The warehouse showroom, they perfected it. Like, so they did all these things. And then when they were pretty viciously attacked by the existing furniture industry, they were able to survive. I think I, I can't help but feel like maybe the cinnamon rolls are, are really the key differentiator, though. You know, I mean, it's it's impossible to walk out of an IKEA without a pack of those cinnamon rolls and the hot dog. Oh my god! The, and the, the meatballs. We're sitting here talking about yeah. IKEA. It's it's a restaurant and a furniture store. I mean, that really is at the end of the day what this is all about, right? Food. That's the answer. <laughs> oh, food in a ball pit. I mean, if you can't dump the kids in the ball pit, you're missing the best the best four hours of uh, of couple time you're going to get this weekend. You know. You know. Bury the kids in uh, in balls and, uh, you know, boost their immune, immune system and get some shopping done. I mean, we have, it's a great combination. We have all been there. He is the author of The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. You can pre-order now wherever books are available. Mr. Jim McKelvey, thanks so much for taking the time to join us this week. Yes, thank you, Jim. Jason, thank you. Oh, uh, let me tell you one other thing, uh, because why would anyone pre-order a book? Um, the answer is because I'm giving away a comic book along the way. Ah, yes, the graphic so, novel idea. Yeah, so so uh, true confession, I don't particularly like reading business books. I think they're boring. 
And when I started to write this, I thought I didn't want to write another boring business book. So the original draft of my book was a graphic novel. It switched from text to graphic novels in a way that I thought was really cool. But then I gave it to my publisher and they were like, you idiot. People use <laughs> e-readers. People use audiobooks. No one's going to read this thing if it's half comic. So what I did was I split the comics off and I published it myself. And you get a, get a copy for free if you pre-order. So if you pre-order, you not only get the book, but you get the comic book. Um, and you'll learn about the world's most badass banker. Well, that is an offer that we <laughs> just can't refuse. There you go. Some bonus for, uh, for full listeners. Jim, thanks again. Yeah, thank you, Jim. Matt, Jason, thank you so much. Bye-bye. And that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus or drop us an email at IndustryFocus at Fool.com. Let us know what you thought of the interview. Give us ideas for future shows or, hey, just tell us about the latest stocks you bought. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his constant innovation behind the glass this week. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. 